Paul has just spent 12 verses, verses in chapter 1 of Ephesians, outlining and unpacking the fruit of the believer's union with Christ. And you likely know that this is one long, unbroken sentence from the apostle. Stretches from verse 3 all the way to verse 14. And what we see is that Paul's so caught up in the majesty of what he's communicating to the Ephesians that he doesn't even take a breath or take a break to lift his pen. He's basically telling the Ephesians that in Christ, they have been given everything. They have it all. Look at verse 3. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And he goes on in verses 4 to 14 to detail the incomprehensible nature of these blessings. Let me summarize for you what these blessings are. First, the blessing of the Father. That the Father in eternity past wrote a plan of redemption that included you. He chose you in Christ in order that you would be holy and blameless. He predestined you to adoption as a son or daughter for himself. And he did this out of his own good pleasure. It's the Father's delight to do this. He didn't begrudgingly make you his son or daughter. He delights to do it. Second, the Son, in becoming a man, lived and died and rose in order to obtain your salvation. And also, all the blessings that accompany that salvation. In Jesus, we have redemption, the full pardon of our sin. In Jesus, we are made privy to God's plan to unite all things, whether in heaven or on, on earth, underneath the headship of Christ. Right? This is all detailed in verses 3 to 14. And third, the Holy Spirit actively works to apply God's redemptive work in our lives. He seals us with the promise of God and he guarantees our final inheritance. This is all detailed in this sentence from verse 3 to verse 14. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Godhead at work to bless the believer. That's incredible. The Trinitarian effort to bless you, child of God. It's a remarkable sentence. Um, it, it, it truly is incomprehensible. It's wonderful. Our election, our predestination, our adoption, our redemption, God's grace towards you, that is his unmerited favor towards you, the forgiveness of your sins, insight, understanding, knowledge of God's will, the sealing of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your final inheritance. All of these things come to you through Christ. Now what more, then, do believers need? What is lacking in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14? I challenge you to look at these verses and find something that's missing. 
Find something where you might say, oh, man, I just wish that this was there. No, there is nothing lacking in this sentence. Christians, united to Christ by faith, have it all. So, how do you pray then for someone who has everything? Well, having detailed the saints' rich blessings in Christ, Paul is brought to his knees in prayer. He prays that God would help these dear Christians comprehend the magnitude of what he had just written. Paul is aware that what he just said is incomprehensible. It's so good that we won't believe it naturally. It's unbelievable. But Paul, in light of this, he knows this, and so he's driven to pray. And he prays that God would help them to comprehend what he has just said. He didn't want these precious saints to be ignorant of their blessings in Christ, but even more, he wanted them to come to grips with it. He didn't want them to miss what they'd been given, but he wanted them to lay hold of it as well. There's a story of an art collector who prided himself in having the most expensive and rare art that he could get his hands on. And he had amassed one of the largest collections of fine art in the world. But one day he heard about a rare piece of art that he wanted to get his hands on. And so he searched for it all around the world for some time and he could never find it. So, determined as he was, he hired a man to track down this piece. And after a few days, the man reported back to the collector with good news. He said, I found the painting. Overjoyed, the art collector asked the man, where did you find it? And the man said, it was in your basement. It's in your basement. He had it the whole time. When it comes to our resources in Christ, this is the way we often are. We feel we need more. Right? We feel we need more. We want more because we don't realize that we have been given everything in Christ. And brothers and sisters, God does not want us to function this way. He doesn't want us to function and live our lives as if we are in need spiritually. He would have us to know that he has given us everything in Christ. He wants us to know this so that we can live lives that glorify him. And beloved, unless you understand that in Christ you have it all, you'll spend your days trying to find what you've already been given. And sadly, far too many of us have lived with no real comprehension of our resources in Christ. We live roller coaster lives, defeated lives, confused lives, scared lives, anxious lives, all because we're looking for something that we already have in Christ. And this ought not to be. So Paul writes and he prays that unlike the art collector, that we would comprehend 
all that is ours in Jesus. That's what verses 15 to 23 are about. So this morning, what we'll do is we're going to follow along with Paul in his prayer report and make specific applications of how we can imitate Paul's prayer for these believers. He gives us four specific requests in these verses. Four specific requests underneath the heading of comprehending our blessings in Christ. Comprehending our blessings in Christ. So first, Paul prayed that God would give others a spirit of comprehension. That's in verse 17 and 18. We see this request here that Paul's prayer is that God would give the Ephesian believers a spirit of comprehension. Now, before we look in verses 17 and 18, I want us to look at verses 15 and 16. Paul writes, For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Before Paul gets to his specific request, he, gives thank, he gave thanks to God for two things. The authentic faith of the Ephesian believers, right? You see that in the text. Having heard the faith, your faith in the Lord Jesus, the faith that exists. And he also gives thanks to God for the love that exists in this precious church. So my point briefly here is that the people for whom Paul prays are believers. They are faithful, according to Ephesians 1, saints. And Paul, in verses 15 and 16, thanks God for their faith and for their love. So these are believers. You with me? Okay, this is important to help us understand verse 17. Verse 17. Here's his request. Two believers, but then he prays this prayer. Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And then he gets on to the so that. But his request really there is in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. A spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And then he gives a metaphor to help us understand that, that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened. Now there's some debate whether the prayer request here is that God would give a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's the NASB, the King James, the Net Bible. Or that God would give the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. It's the ESV, the NIV, Christian Standard Bible. So you have a, a, a sort of difficulty here. Is it a spirit or is it the spirit? It's pretty significant. But it's not as black or white as it seems, and good men 
disagree on this. Some say, obviously, a spirit. Others say it's the spirit, as in the Holy Spirit. But I believe the best translation is a spirit and not the spirit, as in the Holy Spirit. And let me give you my brief argument for that. First, we've seen that Paul is praying for believers. That was my point in verses 15 and 16. These are believers that Paul is praying for. As believers then, they've been indwelt by whom? The Holy Spirit. They have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them already. They belong to God. Read Romans 8 9. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Right? The Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. Whoever doesn't have the Holy Spirit doesn't belong to God. So if you have the Holy Spirit, you belong to God. And so we know that the Holy Spirit was in these people because they had believed the gospel and because they now belonged, body, soul, life, death, to Christ. So that's my first argument. It's a spirit because they already have the spirit dwelling in them. Secondly, Paul explicitly states in chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, that the Ephesians had received the Holy Spirit already. Look at those verses. He writes, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So they had received the Holy Spirit already as a down payment of their inheritance. So for these reasons, I don't think Paul is praying that God would give them the Spirit. They already have the Spirit. So what what does Paul mean then by a Spirit? A Spirit of wisdom and of revelation. We don't think or even talk in that sort of terminology. And when we think like that, it, it sort of makes us feel odd, a spirit of, you know, fill in the blank. But Paul actually uses this terminology frequently. And, and what he means here is a disposition. It's a disposition, a spirit of wisdom, a disposition of wisdom. And, and he uses the same terminology in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 21. He writes to them, he says, What do you desire, Corinthian church? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love and a spirit of gentleness. Spirit of gentleness. He does, says the same thing in Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. 1 Peter 3.4, speaking to wives, Peter says, Your adornment, adornment must not be merely external, But let it be with the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So Paul here is talking about a disposition. And to be clear, this is a disposition that is wrought in the believer by the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, hang in with me here. I know this is kind of hard to track with. But this is a, a, an incredibly compact verse, and, and what we, we can mine out of this is really helpful. So what Paul is praying is that God would give them a spirit or a disposition of wisdom and revelation 
And we know that this disposition is born or brought about in us by the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit wrought disposition that Paul prays for is in a specific narrow direction. Look at the end of verse 17. The spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. It is called a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Wisdom is the capacity to understand and to live accordingly. And revelation refers to uncovering or making known of truth. This is God's truth. And both of these are, are described within the realm of the knowledge of God. You with me? So what does this mean? What is Paul's point? Well, the idea is that God, this is Paul's prayer, that God would give these people a disposition, a sort of capacity to comprehend what God had revealed. Namely, Ephesians 1, verse 3, all the way to verse 14. So a, a capacity to comprehend what God had revealed and that they would live their lives in light of this incredible blessing. It's not just that they would know it, but that they would comprehend it, that they could get their arms around the magnitude of what Paul had just said about their blessings in Christ. He knew that as soon as they read this, there would be people that sit in the pew in Ephesus and said, there is no way that could or that's way too good to be true. Or they would just let it just, you know, fly over their head and not grab it and take hold of it. And so Paul prays, God, give them a disposition. Give them the ability to comprehend how wonderful this truth of being united to Christ actually is. Paul writes to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. This is the idea. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Look, flip over to Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, verse 18, for time's sake. I can't read the whole thing, although we will read the whole chapter in 40 minutes. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. This is Paul's prayer in chapter 3. I pray that you would be able to know or comprehend with all the saints the unknowable or the surpassing knowledge, uh, the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So Paul here in Ephesians 3 is praying similar, similarly as he does in Ephesians 1. Basically, that the saints in Ephesus would be able to comprehend something that surpasses knowledge. Comprehend what's incomprehensible. So, this seems... Impossible 
right? How do you comprehend the incomprehensible? Well, you do it by the strength and power and the work of the Holy Spirit, which is why Paul immediately prays that God would give comprehension to the Ephesian church. In order to bring clarity to his request, he gives a metaphor, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That your hearts would be enlightened. The eyes of your heart. So your heart then has eyes. And those eyes, Christian, are either opened and see clearly or they get foggy and dim. And maybe they're closed to the truth, the wonderful reality of your blessings in Christ. There's a question of application. How clearly are you seeing your blessings in Christ today? Well, Paul prays that your eyes would be open. It's really similar to glasses, right? Um, Glasses, when I take my glasses off, I'm the only person in this room. When I put them on, there are five other people here. (laughs) When I put my glasses on, I see clearly. And this is the spirit of Paul's metaphor. His desire for the Ephesians is that they would have their eyes wide open to their blessings in Christ. And where does this sort of visual clarity come from? The source is God. Verse 17 The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. He is the one who gives clarity. God is the one who gives us the sort of comprehension of what is truly ours in Christ. He enlightens our eyes. And so we pray that God would open our eyes and illuminate our hearts so that we could see what is ours in Christ. When our vision is clear, we can't help but be overwhelmed by the magnificent generosity of God. Just read Ephesians 1, 3-14 today and meditate on that. God has so richly supplied us with everything we need in Christ. And yet, we so often bumble through the world, especially in times of crisis, and we forget who we are, we forget what is ours in Christ. We can be so engaged in good things, right? Preserving our livelihood, caring for other people, keeping our hands clean right now, making sure we have enough toilet paper. We can be engaged in these sort of things and be so busy that our eyes start to dim to what is ours. We lose sight of what is ours in Christ. And and friends, we are especially prone especially prone to having our senses, spiritual senses, dulled. We need light, the light of the Holy Spirit to illumine us afresh to what is ours in Christ. So Paul then prays that God would grant these brothers and sisters the ability just to lay hold of it or that they could comprehend with clarity what is their wealth in Christ. They wouldn't live impoverished lives, but they would live with a full awareness of what is theirs in Jesus. And so, by application, we too pray that God would give others a spirit of comprehension that is an enlightened 
mind, enlightened heart to see and behold their overwhelming blessings in Christ. That's a great prayer to pray for one another right now, especially. When everyone's minds are fixated on what we need, right? We need this. We need more of this. We don't have enough. There's a crisis. It's important that we think about those things, friends, but let us not lose sight of the reality that we already have everything we need in Christ. These are remarkable things. But Paul, rather than rehearse all of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, what he does is he summarizes the blessings that the believer has in three categories. Three specific blessings, and those form the other three prayer requests. First, Paul prays then that God would grant them the ability to comprehend. This, they would have this disposition of comprehension. And then he prays that they would specifically be able to comprehend the hope of their calling. What is the hope of his calling? We see this in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. The hope of his calling. Here, this refers to the hope that comes from being called by God. The hope that comes from being called by God. Grammatically, this is called a genitive of source or production. Therefore, we could translate it this way. The hope that is produced by his calling. So Paul prays that they will know what is the hope produced by being called of God. Now we have seen in previous Sunday school lessons that when Paul talks about a calling, he's talking about the call to salvation. See Romans 8, 28 to 30. We've also seen that in 1 Timothy 6.12, where Paul tells Timothy, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So there's a calling here that is salvific. God's salvation, right? This is what Paul is talking about. God's salvation then produces hope. Hope is the looking forward to something with a confidence respecting its fulfillment. We often say that hope is confident expectation. So the hope of our calling then, in verse 18, is the hope really of our salvation. Hope of our salvation. The hope of eternal life. It is the fulfillment of all, of every, each salvific promise that God has made to us. It's the fulfillment of every one of God's salvific promises that he has made to us. Just rehearse what those are in your mind. Let's just take one of them. Let's take one. Paul mentions it in Ephesians 1 verse 7. Is the forgiveness of sin. That's a salvific promise. What is the hope of this promise, the forgiveness of sin? 
Well, it's this. The hope of our calling, of our salvation in the area of forgiveness of sin is that you and I and all who have believed on Christ will be fully pardoned and forgiven when we stand before the judge of all the earth. We are, in fact, forgiven now. But there is a future aspect of our salvation that's yet to come. That is when we all each stand before Christ, fully aware of our utter sinfulness and worthiness only of God's unmitigated wrath. When we stand before him, we will have full comprehension of our utter unworthiness. I think Isaiah 6. And then the Father looks at us as we quake underneath the weight of our sin. And he declares us to be fully pardoned by the blood and merit of Christ alone. Oh, friend, that is a wonderful reality. I, sometimes I think uh, of what that might be like. And I've had this thought before where I'm sitting, you know, there, this is not, I can't, I'm not giving you chapter and verse here, right? This is principle. Um, we sit, there's a hallway, the judge of all the earth is on, he's on the bench, he's sitting there, he's, he's, he's making his judgments, and one by one, um, sinners go before him, people I know, I'm in line with, and uh, brothers that I know, and I see them, and they go up to the judge, and I know their sin, and I know this is a just God, and they will be found guilty. And one by one, though, he pardons them. They were better than I thought. What's wrong? There's something going on here. One by one, they're pardoned, they're pardoned, they're pardoned. And then I come up, and I know what's really going to happen. I'm going to stand before the judge of all the earth, and the weight of my sin is going to come to bear on me. And he looks, and he says, fully forgiven in Christ. Justified. And we go free. That's the hope of the forgiveness of sin. That although our sins are like scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow. It's only believers that rejoice at this. The only person who rejoices in the forgiveness of sins is the person who knows how terribly you are. You know that you are a terrible sinner and you need a great Savior. And so the hope of forgiveness of sins is just a wonderful reality. On that day, God will say, I've wiped out your transgression like a thick cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And he'll declare us forgiven. And we will say with Micah, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in unchanging love. So the hope of our calling is the hope of our salvation. The hope of our salvation is that God will actually do for us all that he has said he will do. Beloved, once we come to grips with this reality, we are freed. Freed from the bondage of the law. Freed from the bondage of every other avenue of seeking to attain salvation. And we can rest fully in Christ, we no longer 
place our hopes in government, in wealth, in health, in our investments, in the depths of our pantries, but in Christ alone. So we pray then that God would cause us and others to lay hold of the hope of their salvation. That we, having comprehended the blessings of being reconciled to God in Christ, would live every day with a constant hope and confidence in God's redeeming love. That we would enjoy the certainty of our salvation. You know, it's, it's a, it would be a tragedy for you to have these, the wealth of the, the forgiveness of your sins, the, the knowledge that Christ has reconciled you fully to God, and then you live your life just thinking that somehow you, you are unworthy or somehow that you have to regain uh, a place before God or somehow that you have to do what Christ has already done. The hope of our salvation is that Christ saves us. We can never save ourselves. So we pray, God, help us comprehend that. Third, Paul prays that God would cause these folks to comprehend the wealth of his inheritance. It's in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. There's another question here as to who is the one receiving the inheritance in this verse. Is it God's inheritance of the saints or the saints' inheritance that comes from God? Once again, uh, good men disagree here, but I think the context suggests that Paul's aim here is to help saints wrap their arms around the immensity of their blessings in Christ. And in Ephesians 1.11, Paul mentions that in Christ, the saints have obtained an inheritance. You see that in verse 11. They've already obtained an inheritance. In verse 14, the Holy Spirit comes as the down payment of our inheritance. It's the guarantee that you will receive an inheritance, believer. You have the Holy Spirit. That's the down payment. That's the foretaste of what is to come. That's, that's the securing, the surety of God's promised inheritance. It's Ephesians 1.14. So I think the emphasis here for Paul is that these dear people would just come to grips with what is really theirs in Christ. So it's most likely then that this inheritance refers to the inheritance of each individual saint. And this inheritance is described in the text as rich and glorious. Rich and glorious. If a lawyer came to you, said, hey, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Let me say bad news first. Because bad news is your uncle died. Good news is that he left you a rich and glorious inheritance. What would your expectation be? It would be high, right? A rich and glorious inheritance. What is this rich and glorious inheritance? The Bible says that saints have been made sons and daughters of God so that they are heirs of 
really a number of things. First, the world. You, as a saint, a believer in Christ, will inherit the earth. The world is yours. Saints also are heirs of eternal life. They're heirs of righteousness. Heirs of salvation. We are called, believing Christians are called co-heirs with Christ. You're heirs of God. First Corinthians says that we are the inheritors of everything. Jonathan Edwards, writing on this, said, By virtue of the believer's union with Christ, he does really possess all things. I mean that God, three in one, all that he is, and all that he has, and all that he does, all that he has made or done, the whole universe, bodies and spirits, earth and heaven, angels, men, devils, sun, moon, stars, land and sea, fish and fowls, silver and gold, kings and potentates, are as much the Christians as the money in his pocket, the clothes he wears, or the house he dwells in, by virtue of his union with Christ. That's remarkable. He goes on, because Christ, who certainly does possess all things, is the Christians. And then he says this, every atom in the universe is managed by God so as to be most advantageous to the Christian. Every particle of air, every ray of the sun, so that the Christian in the world, so that the Christian in the world to come, when he sees it, shall sit and enjoy all of this vast inheritance with surprising and amazing joy. The believer's inheritance is remarkable. Flip with me to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth. Just listen to this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write for, the, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Now notice verse 7. And he who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. 
That is the inheritance of the saints. Coming to grips with this inheritance lifts us up to heaven, really, where our treasure truly is, where moth and rust do not destroy. It frees us from being really tethered to the world uh, such that our joy rises and falls with our circumstances. Because we know as saints united to Christ that we have an inheritance in heaven that's undefiled. And coming to grips with this, it also frees us to live selflessly and courageously in the present. We know that this present world is not our home. It's not our inheritance. It's not our heaven. That's so we don't live like it is. We're able to live differently because we know that this is not it for us. But the sad reality is that for so many, so many, our neighbors, our friends, this is heaven for them. This is the closest that they will ever get to heaven. Friends, this is no heaven. So we don't want to live like this is it for us. And what a time to live as if our inheritance is in heaven. What an opportunity to demonstrate to our neighbors and friends that this is not it for us. We love horizontally. We care. We, we love selflessly and we serve. We wash our hands for the good of our neighbor. But we also don't panic. We are also not anxious because this world is not it for us. We have an inheritance that is in heaven. I'm reminded of Jesus' response to Peter when Peter said, See, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will also sit upon twelve thrones, judging twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or, or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much, a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. Friends, we don't live as if father and mother and children and farms and wealth and bank accounts are our inheritance. Right? We, we joyfully let them go and lay hold of Christ, and at the end of it, we say, gain. All is gain. Nothing lost. Because we've comprehended the glorious wealth of our inheritance. So we pray, God, help us, each, your church, to comprehend this incredible truth that we have a remarkable, surpassingly great, rich inheritance. Well, then fourth, Paul prayed that God would cause these dear people to come to grips with the greatness of God's power that is at work in them. Verses 19 to 23. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Verse 19. You may be able to comprehend what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. 
Right? So what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Now he goes on and says this, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Of all that Paul has just mentioned, he spends the most time on this point. Verses 19 to 23. On the point that the believers in Ephesus would come to grips or comprehend the remarkable, awesome, overwhelming reality that God's power is at work in each one of them. And it's not just power. He calls it the surpassing greatness of his power. The immeasurable greatness of his power. Simply put, God's power is his ability. The capability that he has to do whatever he wants. And the wonderful reality is that he wants to bless you. Read Ephesians 1, 3-14. If you are in Christ, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are at work to bless you. He wants to bless you and God gets what He wants. This is not the prosperity gospel. But our theology needs to be constantly scrutinized and refined according to God's Word. And when you read Ephesians 1, your theology will be readjusted to see just how overwhelmingly for you and loving and gracious and desirous of blessing to you that God the Father is. And he's done everything to see it come about. He is powerful. It's one thing, though, to confess that God is powerful. It's quite another to comprehend that by virtue of your union with Christ by faith, the greatness of God's power is at work in you. Paul wants us to get this. He keeps talking about it in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 3.20, he writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. The power that works within us. Paul was aware that God, with his extraordinary power, was at work in the Ephesian believers. He was also aware that God was at work in him. Colossians 1.29, For this purpose I labor striving according to his power, which he mightily works within me. God's power was at work in Paul. It was at work in the believer in Ephesus. And it's at work in the Christian today. And friends, we have got to come to grips with that reality. It's incredible. And Paul gives really four demonstrations or illustrations of this kind of power that's at work in you. Just hear it. Verse 20, the same power which raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. The same power, according to verse 20, 21, 
which exalted Jesus to the Father's right hand, is at work in you. The same power which subjected all things under the feet of our Lord is at work in you, believer. The same power that established Jesus as the head of the church is at work in you. Do you comprehend that? Have you, have you come to the place where you've come to grips with that? Where you've got your arms around the reality that the greatness and measurable power of God is at work in you? It's, it's an incredible reality. But God is fully credible. It is an incomprehensible reality. But God gives us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to comprehend that which is incomprehensible. And here... I think unless God gives us comprehension, we will not grasp the greatness of this truth. And if we don't grasp the greatness of that reality, each one of us will be stuck, I think, stuck. Stuck in place in our sanctification, in our efforts with our neighbors, in our efforts to share the gospel. We'll be stuck because... If we're not comprehending the greatness of God's power at work in us, our opposition is amplified. Our sin seems so great. Our weakness seems so pervasive. The habits which we are engaged in and want to put to death or change seem so immovably fixed. When we forget that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us, we lose hope and we say things like, I, I just can't change. <laughs> Friend, God is at work. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. So never say, I just can't change. If Jesus can rise from the dead, you can change with God's help. And we partner with God in his powerful work to make us more like Christ. And let me just encourage you, as you seek to be faithful in this unique season where we're isolated from our employees at work and we find ourselves idle in some ways, and idleness is the devil's workshop, we know that we're uniquely tempted during these times. Remember, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, is at work in you. Remember and meditate on that truth as you fight for faithfulness. So how do we pray? Well, we pray that God would cause others to comprehend the immeasurable power of God at work in them. This is a wonderful, wonderful way to pray because our tendencies are to grow dull. Our tendencies are to not grasp what God has clearly laid out for us in Scripture. So we pray for one another. God, help us to come to grips. Help us to comprehend just how wonderful it is to be united to Christ by faith. And I pray that that would be a unique um, and especially sweet experience for you as you meditate on the Lord this week. Father, help us by your grace to do just as we've said and as Paul prayed. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.